Chapter Nine, Part Two of Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. Famous Sea Fights by John R. Hale. Chapter Nine, Part Two. Nelson had been watching Cadiz for three weeks, keeping his fleet well out at sea, with his frigates close into the port and a chain of ships acting as connecting links with them to pass on information by signaling with flags by day and lanterns by night. The system of signaling had been lately so improved that it was fairly rapid and reliable, and Nelson kept his fleet out of sight, and requested that the names of ships sent to reinforce him should not appear in the papers, as he hoped to delude Villeneuve into a false idea that he had a very inferior force before Cadiz. He feared that if the whole array of his fleet were visible from the lookout stations of the port, the Allies would remain safe at anchor. During this period of waiting he had had more than one conference with his captains, and had read and explained to them a manuscript memorandum, dated 9 October, setting forth his plans for the expected battle. His plan of battle excited an enthusiasm among them, to which more than one of them afterwards bore testimony. They said that the Nelson Touch was in it, and it is generally taken for granted that they saw in it something like a stroke of genius and a new departure in tactics. I hope it is not presumption on my part to suggest that their enthusiasm was partly the result of seeing that their trusted leader was thoroughly himself again, and to use a familiar phrase, meant business, and they had a further motive for satisfaction in seeing how thoroughly he relied on them, and how ready he was to give them a free hand in carrying out his general ideas. The Nelson Touch Memorandum of 9 October and the whole plan of the battle have been, and still are, the subject of acute controversy, the various phases of which it would be far too long to discuss. It is strange that after the lapse of a hundred years, and the publication of a vast mass of detailed evidence, British, French, and Spanish, there are still wide differences of opinion as to how the most famous naval battle in history was actually fought out. There is even much uncertainty as to the order in which the British ships came into action. The memorandum shows that Nelson originally contemplated a formation in three lines, an advanced division to windward, a main division under his personal command, and a lee division under his second-in-command, Collingwood. The final grouping of the ships in the battle was in two divisions. In the following list of the British fleet, the names of ships are arranged in the same order in which they appear in Collingwood's dispatch, written after the action. Windward Line Ships, Guns, Commanders Victory, 100 Guns Vice-Admiral Lord Nelson, Captain Hardy Temeraire, 98 Guns, Captain Harvey Neptune, 98 Guns, Captain Fremantle Leviathan, 74 Guns, Captain Bentain Conqueror, 74 Guns Captain Pellew. Britannia, 100 guns. Rear Admiral Lord Northisk, Captain Bullen. Agamemnon, 64 guns. Captain Sir E. Barry. Ajax, 64 guns. Lieutenant Pilfold. Orion, 74 guns. Captain Codrington. Minotaur, 74 guns. Captain Mansfield. Spartiate, 74 guns. Captain Sir F. Lafore. Africa, 64 guns, Captain Digby. Leeward Line, Ships, Guns, Commanders. Royal Sovereign, 100 guns, Vice Admiral Collinwood, Captain Rotherham.
Belle Isle, 74 guns, Captain Hargood. Mars, 74 guns, Captain Duff. Tonnant, 80 guns, Captain Tyler. Belleferon, 74 guns, Captain Cook. Colossus, 74 guns, Captain Morris. Achille, 74 guns, Captain King. Dreadnought, 98 guns, Captain Khan. Polyphemus, 64 guns, Captain Redmill. Revenge, 74 guns, Captain Morsom. Swissure, 74 guns, Captain Rutherford. Defiance, 74 guns, Captain Durham. Thunderer, 74 guns, Lieutenant Stockham. Defense, 74 guns, Captain Hope. Prince, 98 guns, Captain Grindle. Besides one frigate of 38 guns, three of 36, and two brigs of 12 and 8 guns. This was the fleet that lay off Cape Santa Maria, some 50 miles from Cadiz, on Saturday, 19 October, 1805, and received from the frigates watching the port the message, passed on by connecting ships, that the enemy was at last coming out. Villeneuve, like Nelson, had originally divided his fleet into three divisions. On the day of battle it fought in an order which was, as we shall see, partly the result of chance, arrayed in a long double line. He had deliberately mixed together in his array the French and Spanish units of his fleet, to avoid the dangers that might arise from mutual jealousies if they were drawn up in divisions apart. Instead of giving the list of his fleet according to the Ordre de Bataille, drawn up in Cadiz Harbour, long before the event, it will be more convenient to arrange the list as they actually lay in line, from van to rear, on the day of battle. Following, then, is the list of the Allied Franco-Spanish fleet, ships, guns, commanders. Spanish ship Neptuno, 80 guns, commander, unknown. French ship, Sepion, 74 guns, Captain Belange. French ship, Entreped, 74 guns, Commodore and Farnay. French ship, Formidable, 80 guns, Rear Admiral Dumanois Le Pele, Captain Latolia. Spanish ship, Rayo, 100 guns, Commodore McDonnell. French ship, Dugois Truon, 74 guns, Captain Touffe. French ship, Mont Blanc, 74 guns, Commodore La Vilgre. Spanish ship, San Francisco de Esses, 74 guns, Captain De Flordes. Spanish ship, San Agustino, 74 guns, Captain Cahago. French ship, Harrow, 74 guns, Captain Poulon. Spanish ship, Santissima Trinidad, 130 guns, Rear Admiral Cisnerdos, Commodore de Udearte. French ship, Boussantar, 80 guns, Vice Admiral Villeneuve, Captain Mejonde. French ship Neptune, 80 guns, Commodore Mistral. French ship Redoubtable, 74 guns, Captain Luquet. Spanish ship San Leandro, 64 guns, Captain Cavedu. Spanish ship San Justo, 74 guns, Captain Gaston. French ship Indomptable, 80 guns, Commodore Hubert. Spanish ship Santa Ana, 112 guns, Vice Admiral de Alava. French ship Fugot, 74 guns, Captain Boudouin. Spanish ship Monaricai, 74 guns, Captain Argumosa. French ship Breton, 74 guns, Commodore Cusmeo Carjulion. 
ships of the squadron of observation, originally intended to act independently under Gravina. French ship Algacidas, 74 guns, Rear Admiral Mayon, Captain Latuna. Spanish ship Bahama, 74 guns, Commodore Galeano. French ship Aguil, 74 guns, Captain Gorgege. French ship Swissure, formerly British, 74 guns, Captain Velmadra. French ship Argonaut, 74 guns, Captain Epron. Spanish ship Montanas, 74 guns, Captain Elcido. Spanish ship Argonata, 80 guns, Captain Paraja. French ship Berwick, 74 guns, Commodore Philarcama. Spanish ship San Juan Nepomuceo, 74 guns, Commodore De Churuca. Spanish ship El Defonso, 74 guns, Commodore De Vargas. French ship Achille, 74 guns, Captain Duyapal. Spanish ship Principe de Estoreas, 112 guns, Admiral Gravina, Rear Admiral Escogna. Besides five 40-gun frigates and two corvettes, one of 18, the other of 16 guns. So, for as mere figures can show it, the relative strength of the opposing fleets may be thus compared. Line of battle. British fleet. 27 ships, 2,148 guns. Allied fleet. 33 ships, 2,626 guns. Lighter ships. British fleet. 4 frigates, 146 guns. 2 brigs and corvettes, 20 guns. Allied fleet. 5 frigates, 200 guns. 2 brigs and corvettes, 30 guns. But here, once more, as so often happens in naval war, the mere reckoning up of ships and guns does not give the true measure of fighting power. The British fleet was immeasurably superior in real efficiency, and the French and Spanish leaders knew this perfectly well. The morning of 19 October was fine and clear, with the wind from the shore. So clear was the day the lookout in the foretop of the Urialis could see the ripples on the beach. As the sun rose, the enemy's ships were seen to be setting their topsails, and one by one they unmoored and towed down towards the harbor mouth. It was a long process working the ships singly out of harbor. Blackwood, of the Urialis, stood close in, and from early morning till near 2 p.m. was sending his messages to the distant fleet. Hoisted 7.20 a.m., transmitted to the victory soon after 9 a.m. The enemy's ships are coming out. 11 a.m. 19 under sail. All the rest have top yards hoisted except Spanish rear admiral and one line of battleship. About 11.30. Little wind in harbor. Two of the enemy are at anchor. Noon. Notwithstanding little wind, enemy persevere to get outward. The rest, except one line, ready, yards hoisted just before 2 p.m. Enemy persevering to work outward. Seven of line already without, and two frigates. When the fleet began to show in force outside, Blackwood drew off to a distance of four miles from the shore and still watched them. He knew the Urialis could outsail the fastest of the enemy if they tried to attack him. His business was to keep them under observation. He could see that for want of wind they were forced to work out ship after ship by towing them with rowing boats. He knew they could not be all out till the Sunday morning, and he knew also that Nelson had acknowledged his messages, and was beating up nearer and nearer to the port, though with the light winds he could only make slow progress. Unless the enemy scuttled back into the harbor, a battle was inevitable. On Sunday morning, 20 October, the wind freshened and enabled Villeneuve to bring out the last of his ships. 
They were hardly out when the wind changed and blew strong from the southwest, with squalls of rain. The French admiral signaled the order to tack to the southward under shortened sail. The fleet had been directed to sail in five parallel divisions, each in line ahead, but for want of training in the crews, the ships lost station and the formation was very irregular. At four in the afternoon the wind changed again to the northwest, but it was very light and the fleet moved slowly. To the westward, all day, the Urialis and Sirius frigates were seen watching Villeneuve's progress. And just as darkness was closing in, one of the French frigates signaled that there were twenty sail coming in from the Atlantic. If there had been more wind, Villeneuve might have crowded all sail for the straits, but he could only creep slowly along. Flashes and flares of light to seaward showed him the British were exchanging night signals in the darkness. He felt he was closely watched, and he was haunted by the memory of the disastrous night battle in Abacur Bay. Though the wind had gone down, the sea was rough, with a heavy swell rolling in from the westward, the well-known sign of an Atlantic storm that might break on the Spanish coast before many hours. The flickering signals of the British fleet seemed to come nearer as the darkness of the moonless autumn night deepened. At about nine, a shadowy mass of sails was seen not far off. It was the Urialis, that had closed in with every light shaded to have a near look at the enemy. There was an alarm that the British were about to attack, and Villeneuve signaled to clear for action and form the prescribed double line of battle. The sharp drum beats from the French ships, the lighting up of open ports, the burning of blue lights, showed Blackwood what was in progress. It was nearly two hours before the lines were formed and there was much confusion, ships slipping into stations not assigned to them, and Gravina, who had been directed to keep twelve of the best ships as an independent reserve, or squadron of observation, placing them in the line instead of forming independently. Then the fleet went about, reversing its order. Villeneuve had given up the idea of reaching the straits without a battle, and was anxious to have the port of Cadiz under his lee when the crisis came. Nelson's fleet, in two columns in line ahead, was drawing nearer and nearer to his enemy. Between the two fleets, the Urialis flitted like a ghost, observing and reporting every move of the Allies, and sometimes coming quite near them. When the enemy reversed their order of sailing, Blackwood's ship was for a short time ahead of their double line, and saw the Allied fleet looking like a lighted street some six miles long. After midnight the alarm in the Franco-Spanish fleet was passed off, and all the men who could be spared had turned in. At dawn, on the Monday, the French frigate Hermione reported the enemy in sight to windward, and at seven Villeneuve again gave the order to clear for action. The sight of the Allied fleet had called forth a great outburst of exultation on board of Nelson's ships. As the day dawned, wrote one of his officers, the horizon appeared covered with ships. The whole force of the enemy was discovered standing to the southward, distant about nine miles, between us and the coast near Trafalgar. I was awakened by the cheers of the crew, and by their rushing up the hatchways to get a glimpse of the hostile fleet. The delight they manifested exceeded anything I ever witnessed. Opposing fleets, separated by only nine miles of sea, would in our day be exchanging long-range fire after a very few minutes of rapid approach. It was to be nearly six hours before Nielsen and Villeneuve came within fighting distance. The wind had become so slight that the British fleet was often moving at a speed barely more than a knot, over the grey-green ocean swells. Still anxious to fight, with Cadiz as a refuge for disabled ships, Villeneuve presently signaled to his fleet to go about. After they altered their order of sailing and began to sail to the northward, 
moving very slowly with the wind beam close hauled on the port tack the course of the victory was a little north of east directed at first to a point about two and a half miles ahead of the leading ship of the enemy the royal sovereign leading the leeward line on a parallel course was about a mile to the southward as the allied fleet was moving so as presently to cross the course of the british the result would be that at the moment of contact the line led by the victory would come in a little ahead of the enemy's center and the royal sovereign to the rearward of it but the courses of the two fleets did not intersect at right angles many of the current plans of battle and strange to say the great model at the royal united service institution though constructed while many trafalgar captains were still living are misleading in representing the british advance as a perpendicular attack in closely formed line ahead in the heavy swell and the light wind the allied fleet had succeeded in forming only an irregular line when it went about there were wide gaps some of them covered by ships lying in a second line and the fleet was not in a straight line from van to rear but the van formed an obtuse angle with the rearward ships a flat apex towards cadiz so that some of nelson's officers thought the enemy had adopted a crescent formed array at the moment of contact collinwood's division was advancing on a course that formed an acute angle of between forty and fifty degrees with the line and course of the french rear the result would be that the ships that followed the royal sovereign were brought opposite ship after ship of the french line and could fall upon them almost simultaneously by a slight alteration of the course but the french van line lay at a greater angle to the windward attack and here the british advance was much nearer to the perpendicular nelson had in his memorandum forbidden any time being wasted in forming a regular battle line the ships were to attack in the order and formation in which they sailed if the enemy was to leeward as was the case now the leeward line led by collinwood was to fall upon his rearward ships meanwhile the windward line led by the victory would cut through the enemy just in advance of the center and take care that the attack on the rear was not interfered with collinwood was given a free hand as to how he did his work nelson reminded the captains that in the smoke and confusion of battle set plans were likely to go to pieces and signals to be unseen and he left a wide discretion to every one noting that no captain could do wrong if he laid his ship alongside of the nearest of the enemy the actual battle was very unlike the diagram in the memorandum which showed the british fleet steering a course parallel to the enemy up to the actual attack and some of the captains thought that in the confusion of the fight nelson and collinwood had abandoned the plan but if its letter was not realized its spirit was acted upon nelson had said he intended to produce a melee a close fight in which the better training a more rapid and steady fire of the british would tell it was a novelty that the two admirals each led a line into the fight the traditional position for a flagship was in the middle of the admiral's division with a frigate near her to assist in showing and passing signals along the line to the french officers it seemed a piece of daring rashness for the flagships to lead the lines exposing themselves as they closed to the concentrated fire of several ships this method of engaging battle wrote shaquille de touche an officer on the intrepid was contrary to ordinary prudence for the british ships reaching us one by one and at a very slow speed seemed bound to be overpowered in detail by our superior forces but nelson knew his own fleet and ours this was indeed the secret of it all he knew the distant fire of the enemy would be all but harmless 
and once broadside to broadside he could depend on crushing his opponents. This was why he did not trouble about forming a closely arrayed battle line, but let his ships each make her best speed, disregarding the mere keeping of station and distance, so that though we speak of two lines, Collinwood's ships travelled out over many miles of sea, and Nelson's seemed to the French to come in on an irregular crowd. The victory in the leading place, having her two nearest consorts not far astern, but one on each quarter, and at times nearly abreast. Every stitch of canvas was spread, the narrow yards being lengthened out with the booms for the studding sails. Blackwood had been called on board the victory for a while during the advance. Nelson asked him to witness his will, and then talked to him of the coming victory, saying he would not be satisfied with less than twenty prizes. He was cheerful and talked freely, but all the while he carefully watched the enemy's course and formation, and personally directed the course of his own ship. He meant, as he had said before, to keep the enemy uncertain to the last as to his attack, and as the distance shortened he headed for a while for the enemy's van before turning for the dash into his center. Cheerful as he was, he did not expect to survive the fight. He disregarded the request of his friends to give the dangerous post at the head of the line to another ship, and though it was known that the enemy had soldiers on board and there would be a heavy musketry fire at close quarters, he wore on his admiral's uniform a glittering array of stars and orders. To the advancing fleet, the five miles of the enemy's line presented a formidable spectacle. We have the impressions of one of the midshipmen of the Neptune in a letter written after the battle, and he tells how, It was a beautiful sight when their line was completed, their broadsides turned towards us, showing their iron teeth, and now and then trying the range of a shot to ascertain the distance that they might, the moment we came within point-blank, about six hundred yards, open their fire upon our van-ships, no doubt with the hope of dismasting some of our leading vessels before they could close and break their line. Some of the enemy's ships were painted like ourselves, with double yellow streaks, some with a broad single red or yellow streak, others all black, and the noble Santissima Trinidad, with four distinct lines of red, and a white ribbon between them, made her seem to be a superb man-of-war, which, indeed, she was. The Spanish flagship was the largest ship afloat at the time, and she towered high above her consorts. It was not the first time Nelson had seen her in battle, for she was in the fleet that he and Jervis defeated twelve years before off Cape St. Vincent. As the fleets closed, the famous signal, England expects that every man will do his duty, flew from the victory. At half-past eleven, the royal sovereign, leading the lee line, was within a thousand yards of the enemy, making for a point a little to rearward of his center, when the Fougot, the ship for which she was heading, fired a first trial shot. Other ships opened fire in succession, and the center began firing at the Victory and her consorts. Not a shot in reply was fired by the British till they were almost upon the Allies. In the windward line, the Victory, already under fire from eight ships of the Valide van, began the battle by firing her forward guns on the port side as she turned to attack the French Admiral's flagship, the 100-gun Bucentaur. Just as the victory opened fire, at ten minutes to twelve, Collinwood, in the Royal Sovereign, had dashed into the Allied line. He passed between the French Fougot and the Santa Anna, the flagship of the Spanish Rear Admiral Aleva, sending one broadside crashing into the stern of the flagship, and with the other raking the bows of the Frenchman. What would not Nelson give to be here, said Collinwood, to his flag-captain? The hardy comradeship of the two admirals is shown by the fact that at that moment Nelson, 
pointing to the royal sovereign's mast towering out of the dense smoke cloud exclaimed see how that noble fellow collingwood takes his ship into action swinging round on the inside of the santa anna collingwood engaged her muzzle to muzzle for a few minutes of fierce fighting he was alone in the midst of a ring of close fire the fougol raking him astern and two spanish and one french ship firing into his starboard side the pressure on him decreased as the other ships of his division coming rapidly into the action closed with ship after ship of the allied rear further relief was afforded by nelson's impetuous attack on the centre he was steering the victory to pass astern of the Bucentar. captain luca of the redoubtable the next in the line saw this and resolved to protect his admiral he closed up so that his bowsprit was almost over the flagship's stern and the Bucentar's people called out to him not to run into them the victory then passed astern of the redoubtable raking her with a terribly destructive broadside and then ranged up alongside of her luca had hoped to board the first ship he encountered he grappled the english flagship and while the soldiers in the french tops kept up a hot fire on the upper decks the broadside guns were blazing muzzle to muzzle below and a crowd of boarders made gallant but unsuccessful attempts to cross the gap between the two ships the plucky frenchmen being everywhere beaten back the redoubtable's way had been checked and through the gap between her and the Bucentar came the neptune to engage the french flagship while the famous fighting temeraire which had raced the victory into action passed astern of the redoubtable and closed with the spanish san justo ship after ship of both the british divisions came up though there were long gaps in the lines the belle isle second of collingwood's line was three-quarters of a mile astern of the royal sovereign when the first shots were fired it was nearly two hours before the rearmost english ships were engaged meanwhile the leading eight ships of the french van commanded by admiral dumanois in the formidable after firing at the victory and her immediate consorts as they came into action had held on their course and were steadily drifting away from the battle in vain villeneuve signalled to them to engage the enemy dumanois in a lame explanation that he afterwards wrote protested that he had no enemy within his reach and that with the light wind he found it impossible to work back though he used boats to tow his ships round the effort appears to have been made only when he had gone so far that he was a mere helpless spectator of the fight and his most severe condemnation lies in the fact that without his orders two of his captains eventually made their way back into the melee and though it was too late to fight for victory fought a desperate fight for the honor of the flag they flew dumanois's incompetent selfishness left the centre and rear to be crushed by equal numbers and far superior fighting power but it was no easy victory outmatched as they were frenchmen and spaniards fought with desperate courage and heroic determination trafalgar is remembered with pride by all the three nations whose flags flew over its cloud of battle smoke End of chapter nine part two